Good afternoon. My name is Joe Brehob. Uh, I'm a member here. And as Tom said, we're going to talk a little bit about God. And I'm going to try to do it in three questions. And I want to kind of start by going far, far back in time to when I was like 10 years old. And I lived... <laughs> I never thought of that as being funny when I said it. But, uh, so we lived on a... I lived in a house that used to be a farm. And so it had little outbuildings around it. And it was always full of cats. And they weren't really cats that we considered ourselves the owners of. They just sort of existed out there. But we would play with them. And one winter... I had gone out because a lot of the cats had had a second round of kittens. They'll, they'll have them in the, in the spring, and then they'll do it again sometimes in the fall. And those cats, those kittens, that second litter, tend to not, to not survive uh, because of how cold it was. But, uh, and and so we were used to that, but I was just getting to the, to the age where I was no longer really young enough not to see the tragedy in that. But my parents were, you know, they were so old that they no longer really cared about that kind of thing. So <laughs> it was just something that the kids were aware of. And so I went out and I saw this little clump of kittens. And there was one that had been pushed to the outside and he was cold and, you know, obviously stiff and hadn't made it. And that just broke my heart. And so I, I grabbed the kitten and I thought, you know, I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to fix this. So I snuck the cat inside and I, and I put the little body on the, on the register that, that heats the house, you know, that blows there up. And you have to keep in mind that for a, for a hopeful 10-year-old, uh, putting a, a frozen dead cat on the register that ventilates the house is like the height of common sense. And so I put him on there, and he started to warm up, and I'd kind of flip him over. And as he was, as he was thawing, I was, I was praying, and I was praying with um, the kind of an intensity, I think, that comes with childhood or, or great distress, and I had both of those things at that time, so like, these are very deep prayers, and I was really asking God a question, my first question for him, and that was, can you, can you give me a sign? Can you just prove to me that you exist? I mean, this is an amazing opportunity for you to show yourself um, and do this thing, just prove you're here. And if you do, I remember thinking, if you do, I will believe in you forever. And that cat's body softened, and I can remember still, I can remember the water kind of draining in its mouth a little bit, because it was thawing, I think. And I, and I put my hands around it, and I, I kind of tried to do, like, pushing the water out of its body. I tried to blow in its mouth. I tried to blow enough that it would, like, inflate its lungs, but not, not blow its eyes out. And so I was trying to bring him back, and this seems very hard to believe to me now as an adult, but that cat started to breathe, and it came back to life. It started to live and move and have its being. Um, he was back from the dead, and I knew at that moment, beyond any doubt, that God was real. Uh, not only that he was real, but that he moves in the world. So I felt like, well, this, this isn't what I conceived of as faith anymore. It's just certainty. This is just how the world was. And it was a wonderful feeling that that cat was alive again, and now he belonged to me. Uh, I would guess that many of you have had experiences just like that. Um, or may, I mean, <laughs> not just like that, but like it in the sense that you have, you've asked God, sort of in tough times, to give you a sign. How many people here, raise your hand, 
if you have ever said, God, show me a sign. Just show me you're there. If you're there, yes, okay. Um, so my, that's a lot of people. My hope is that God's okay with that or we're just making it matter and matter. Um, but we've all kind of done this, I think, at different times. When we do that, it seems like a very simple question. Just, God, show me a sign. But there's a lot loaded into that question that if we think about it, we realize what we're really asking. What we're saying is, number one, it needs to be miraculous, right? It has to be something to get our attention. And preferably, it's something on demand so that we can know this is something from God to us. And that alone is an incredible request because what you're really saying is, you're saying, God, I hereby notify you that I am willing to step down to the number two position in the universe if you will give me this sign as I'm requesting right now and it would help if it's amazing. So that's the kind of question we're asking God. Um, not only does it have to be a miracle, it has to be personal, right? It has to be something that feels like God did this for me. Um, my cat story is my cat story. It will not change your faith. You, you want to blow into your own dead cat's mouth and have your own experience. That one's mine. Um, and so what I used to do, I remember when I was a kid, I used to ask God, I'd say, God, you know, I remember asking, can you just change the color of the sky? Because I thought that was a way he could just show me, you know, right then, just show me that he's real. And then I, I wouldn't have to worry anymore. But if we think about it, when we say, well, the sign needs to be miraculous and it needs to be personal, there's actually another thing that we've just added. Uh, if it needs to be personal, that means that we don't accept other people's signs as testimony. It's not good enough. So if that's true for us, then that's true for everybody. So when we ask God for a sign, we're really saying we need to be universal as well. It needs to be a sign for us, but it also needs to be a sign that everybody else can see because that's only fair. So it would be like me saying, God, can you make the sky change color uh, for me and also for everyone so we can all see it? But even then, I know from... Um, personal experience that the impact of those signs, they te- it tends to fade, right? We've all had this, we've had these experiences where we think this changes everything, and then nothing changed, right? So what we need is a sign that is is constant, meaning that it's constantly available to us. It's repeated in some way that every time our faith starts to lag again, God kind of brings back that sign so it can it can sort of charge us up again. So it would be like saying, God, can you just change the sky for me? But do it for everybody else, and I, I'm going to need it every day if you don't mind. Um, so, so if you think about it, then when we say, God, give me a sign, I just need to be miraculous, I need to be personal, I need to be universal, and I need you to keep doing it. This is impossible for God to satisfy, not because of him, but because of me. I know this is true because he's actually satisfied my request. He does change the color of the sky every day for everybody. It's called sunset, right? So he, he actually did what I asked him. But when I see a sunset, if I even bother to look at it, and they're all amazing, and he, and he delivers them like clockwork. But if I even bother to look at it, I just think, well, that's not really a sign. Everybody sees that. You know, so it's, it's, he's giving me what I wanted, but it's not good enough. It's like it's saying, you know, it's... So what? It's this big ball of space fire that if it was any closer to us, it would incinerate us. If it was any further, we would all freeze to death. It's in exactly the right place to create life on earth for everybody. Big deal. You know, and I just ignore that sign. I think that's why God, you know, he may offer us signs all the time. I'm not really going to speak to whether he does or not as much as the fact that we just need to understand that as a tool for creating faith, 
the way I'm describing science is kind of a dead end. And I think that's why Jesus in Mark 8 says, you know, to this generation who's seeking to test me and looking for a sign, there's going to be none given to you. Um, however, as a 10-year-old, you know, standing there with that cat, none of that mattered to me. I just knew that I had this cat and he was alive and it was a miracle. Um, so I took the cat and I wrapped it up in a towel and I put it in a little box. I think it was probably a shoe box. And I remember I had this uh, uh, old desk lamp that you can kind of bend the neck and I put it on it and turned it on. So he's like, kind of like french fries, you know, under there to keep him warm. And I gave him milk from a straw. And I can remember dropping drops of milk in his mouth and he really wouldn't move. I would just see the milk slowly kind of drain down and then I'd do it again. But eventually he started to actively swallow and I could see him getting stronger. And it was such an exciting thing for me. And it was odd to me that my parents did not care. You know, this is, I was like in a different universe from them. So eventually I go to bed and I wake up the next morning and I just have this naive assumption that I don't have to go to school today because I have this cat to nurse. And my, my mom, though, is thinking, I want, you know, she, I have four brothers, and she's like, all of you need to be out of the house. That was kind of her directive. And so that meant that this cat had to leave the house, too. She didn't want it in the house. So before school, I took it back out to the barn. It was another really cold day, so I wrapped him up as best I could, put him in his box, put a big bowl of milk beside him, thinking, you know, as he gets stronger and he's going to want more and more milk, it'll be there for him. And I go to school. And I would love to say that I spent the whole day thinking about him, but I'm 10 years old. I forgot about him from the time I got on the bus until the time the bus came back. But as soon as I get, got back, it's the first thing I did. Is I ran to the barn to kind of see how the little, the little guy was doing. And what I found was the milk bowl had been overturned, and the cat was partially covered in milk, and he had froze on the cement floor of the barn. And he was gone. And... Uh, I did not have the heart to pray again for him. Uh, the only question I had for God at that point was, um, how do you let such evil things happen? Um, how can God exist in a world that is so evil and so pointless as to let something like that happen? Uh, and that's a question I think we still ask. It's really a dumb question. Um, it, has, it has a lot of faulty premises. I didn't see it then, but I see it now. One obvious one is it blames God for evil, right? It just assumes that it's God's fault. And I think back to this one little example of mine. It's not God's fault that that cat froze. It was the hard-heartedness of people that made that happen. And I think the same thing is true for a lot of bigger problems, you know, something even as big as world hunger. There's, there's productivity issues and technical issues that have been solved, and it really comes down to human greed and apathy, uh, why that's not solved. It's not God. But we, I think we have a habit of shifting blame, and I don't think God's immune to that game. Um, the second flaw is that it accuses God of breaking a promise that he never made. And it's kind of like this. It's almost like you're saying, you know, God, I should be perfectly happy here, and I'm not. Uh, and therefore, I choose not to believe in you because you failed in that promise. Uh, it's an odd thing to say to God because God, you know, never made that promise. If you believe in the Bible, you know that from, from reading the Bible. It's, it's not there. And if you don't believe in the Bible, then you really have no way to know what it is that God has promised you, if anything. So there's, there's whether you're Christian or not, uh, nobody really should believe that God promised us happiness all the time, at least, at least on this earth. 
If you don't believe that and you think of God as somebody that's made that promise to you, that's an imaginary God that you have made up in your mind. Um, if you think proving the God of the Bible is difficult, good luck with the imaginary God in your head. That one's totally impossible. Um, the third flaw, and this is kind of an odd one, but the question itself requires the existence of evil. The question doesn't make sense without the existence of evil. But in a godless world, is there really any such thing as evil? Is that possible? Another way of saying it would be, uh, if somebody ever asks you, and we'll probably all hear this at least one more time in our lives, somebody's going to say, how can God let such evil things happen? How can God exist in an evil world? I suggest that the response would be, well, how can evil exist in a godless world? How is that possible? And what I mean by that is the, the question assumes an evil world, and I, I take that as meaning a cruel and unjust universe. How can you describe something as truly evil or perfectly bad unless you allow for the existence of that which is perfectly good? So in other words, can you really describe the universe as dark if there were no such thing as light? Or could you describe a line as crooked if you had never seen anything straight? How can we see something as twisted or broken, whether that's a line or a person or a universe, unless we have some real sense of that thing in its perfect state? I think we only perceive of things like injustice because we have this sense of justice. I think we only understand cruelty because we have this very strong sense of what mercy is. We naturally assume uh, an evil world when we ask that question. We just, well, that's the easy part of the question. There, it's an evil world. How does God let this happen? That that's just sort of goes without question. But we all know in our bones there's something very wrong, and that's why we make that assumption so easily. There is something wrong with this world, and we're not meant to live like this. We've all had those experiences, and, and we know something is broken. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, how can something be described as broken unless it was once whole. And so the question then is, was the universe ever whole? And what would that mean? And if it was whole, would there be signs of that today? Sort of like background radiation from the Big Bang that we can still, we can still read. Or if you have like warm pavement and it's still warm even after the sun moves behind clouds, there's still evidence of what was once there. And I think there actually is evidence of that. I think of an example of that is the way we react to injustice or to evil or cruelty. I think there's evidence of this. Um, an example I would give is when you're healthy, you don't really think much about it. So I don't walk around thinking, my goodness, I feel perfectly fine today. Um, it's just, it doesn't enter your mind. It's just the way it's supposed to be. But when I'm sick, it pretty much occupies my mind 24 hours a day, or at least as long as I'm awake. I'm thinking about the fever I have or, you know, whatever symptom that you're feeling. It's constant. You feel it acutely and intensely. And that's because it's not your natural state. You're not meant to be that way, and so you feel it constantly as a burden. The same thing true in that we take environments of love or justice 
or kindness and mercy, we take those for granted. When we grow up in those environments, when we experience them for some period of time, we think, well, this is, this is just how it is. You forget to say thank you because this is just the way life is supposed to be. But when we personally experience things like hate or cruelty or injustice, we get very offended very quickly and we get very angry and we're stirred to action. It's not our natural environment. And it's almost as if we were made for the first but not for the second. We are not made, I would say, for an evil world. It's a foreign environment to us. It's like when a man who is made for dry land falls in the water. And as C.S. Lewis said, when that happens, he feels wet in a way that a fish never does. And it's because he's not made for that environment. Or it might be the way that when you walk around, I suspect that at times that you're being honest, you don't think to yourself, say somebody asks you a question, you answer them honestly. You don't think to yourself, wow, nice job. You were honest. Good, nice going. You know, you just, that's just how it is. But when you tell a lie, it's an immediate burden. It burns in your mind that you've done it until it sort of wears off. But you feel it intensely because we are built for honesty. We're built for integrity. We're built for pure hearts. I would suggest that when we're describing this universe the way I'm describing it as being whole, um, this thing that we're kind of yearning for, the way life should be, what we're describing is a world in which there's these universal standards that are always being upheld. And by universal standard, I mean like an ideal, like, like justice, liberty, honesty, loyalty, mercy. Uh, what I don't mean is uh, like a custom that everyone agrees to, like you should tip 20% for good service. That kind of thing changes with time, right? We can decide, well, what does good service merit in this situation? Is it a tip? Is it a bow? Is it a thank you? I'm talking about the universal standard of justice, which says good service should be rewarded. That never changes, and we don't have the ability to change it. So the distinction I'm making is that there are universal standards that represent ideals that we cannot create or change or abolish. We can just discover them. And once we discover them, we can abide by them or we can reject them. But we can't, we have no other choice. It's one of those two things. Um, some people might be saying right now, what is he talking about? So I want to give you an example. Uh, slavery. And when I say slavery, I mean slavery as it was practiced in the American South before the Civil War. That slavery, that slavery violates the universal standard of justice, I would say. If you could go back and you could check and you found out that a majority of people in the South thought that slavery was okay, would that make slavery right? No. No, it wouldn't. It would make it legal. If everybody in the United States or everybody in the world thought slavery was, was okay, would that make it right? No, it was wrong then. It always has been and always will be wrong. It really doesn't matter uh, what, a person, what people's opinions are. And it's nice that we happen to live in a time when this universal standard is, is, is well understood. Um, but what we can't do is pretend that we made slavery wrong by writing a law or passing an amendment, or a Supreme Court decision. None of those things made slavery wrong. They just made it illegal. It's always been wrong. If you're not sure whether you sort of agree with that idea, I have another test for you. The test would be, 
to answer this question. The question is, do the recent changes in public attitudes and, and the laws with regard to marriage equality in this country, does that represent moral regression or moral progress? So think about that, whether you believe that those changes in attitude, is that, is that moral progress or moral regression? And to help you decide whether you believe in universal standards. If you said, that's moral regression, that's moving backwards, good, you are, you are affirming a universal standard. You're saying that there is some standard that we as a country are slowly moving away from. But here's the twist. If you feel like that's progress, good. You're still affirming a moral standard. You're saying that there is a standard for how, every, how everybody should be treated and that we are actually, as a country, moving closer to it, thankfully. So regardless of where you stand on that issue, no matter how divisive that is, we have something so much more important in common, and that is that we're all affirming that there are these universal standards that we actually can't affect. Uh, we can argue about what they are, but we can't actually change them. They just exist. And we all have something else in common. We live in a very hopeful world then because we live in a world where we feel that as we move closer and closer to these universal standards and we figure them out like we do with slavery, that this world conforms to those and adopts them fully, that it becomes a really wonderful place. And we all believe that that is in our future. What's so interesting, though, about these standards, like I said, is that they are outside our jurisdiction. So we can't decide that slavery is wrong. We can only realize that it's wrong. It was wrong before we thought about it. So if you think about that, what you're saying is slavery is wrong no matter what anybody says. I think everybody could agree with that. Slavery is wrong no matter what anybody says. Now think about what you're saying. No matter what anybody says. So people, as a group, no matter how many of us agree, we can't affect that. It's beyond our control. It's hard to wrap your mind around what you're saying, but you're basically saying that these are, there are standards that are out of our control. There are standards that we can't change or abolish. They just exist. And so you have to ask yourself, if that's true, how is that possible? How can there be standards out there that we cannot create or change or destroy? Where did they come from? And I would suggest that the presence of universal standards points to the presence of a universal standard bearer. And whether you think of that standard bearer as a god or some kind of force, what's really interesting to me about it is the types of standards that we sense, you know, are preoccupied with things like justice and mercy and loyalty and honor. I don't perceive like universal standards of sarcasm. You know, we're not all aspiring to something there. So when you think about that, what those preoccupations are, I don't think that tells us much about us. I think that tells us a lot about whatever it is that created these standards in the first place that we aspire to. And the last thing I would suggest that we should think about with universal standards, and this seems kind of obvious, but they're mental concepts. So you can't, you can't go looking for justice in the ruins of ancient Greece. You can't dig it up and find it. Right? And you can't find mercy in some filing cabinet in Washington, D.C. They simply exist in our minds. That's, that's where they stay. But even though that's true, they're indestructible. Like I said, we can't change them or destroy them. And it's really more than that. Because if you think about it, not only can we not control these universal standards, they control us. Right? They determine our beliefs, they determine our actions, our thoughts, our preferences. 
even more than that, what's odd about these mental concepts is that while we are very, very limited, they are not. And what I mean by that is they exist everywhere in the universe. So slavery is wrong on Earth. Is it wrong on Jupiter? Yes. Yes, it is. Have we been to Jupiter? No. Slavery got that, that, that universal standard got there first. It's wrong everywhere, even places we haven't been. It's also true that it's wrong every when. It's, they're timeless. So if you go back as far as you can in time, slavery is wrong. If you go as far forward as you want in time, slavery is wrong. It doesn't matter what opinions are. It doesn't matter what people think. It's always going to be wrong, whether they understand it or not. So we've got universal standards like justice and mercy and love that are mental concepts. They exist in our minds, and yet they're not contained by our minds. Our minds are finite, but these ideals are somehow infinite, both in time and space. So if they're mental concepts, they're the product of a mind. What mind? And what kind of mind? It would be one that's outside of our own, absolutely. It would be one that is very powerful. It would be one that is omnipresent. And it would be one that is eternal. It has to be to create those kinds of concepts. So for lack of a better term, I'm going to call this mind God. Now, I did not think through all of this when I was 10 years old. All right? I was, I was thinking mostly just about this little frozen cat. And I really wasn't going to pray to some universal standard bearer for help. Uh, so the fact is that all of this that we've talked about really, really didn't help me in that situation. It really wouldn't help me even if I understood it at all. It's not comforting. And about 15 years later, when I was standing next to my mother who was dying in the hospital... Uh, after a failed surgery, they were of no comfort to me then either. Um, and and, it, and I, I believe the same thing I started to believe after that, that incident with the cat, that there really is nothing to believe in. And when she died, I didn't know, I didn't know how to feel about that. Um, she was not afraid when she died because she had a very strong faith, a very firm faith. But, you know, what's interesting is I wasn't afraid of death either. I actually was, um, I feel like quite comfortable in a godless universe. I could, I could deal with that. That's fine. What I couldn't deal with is not knowing the truth. I just wanted to know what is true. And I want to know the answer to questions like, what exactly are we? What are we made of? What is our purpose? Why are we here? And where are we going? Is it nowhere? Is it somewhere? I can't imagine living a life and not knowing the answer to those questions. So I spent a few more years kind of wrestling around with those kind of questions and a lot of other, you know, there's the ontological argument, teleological argument, fine-tuning argument, um, first cause argument, blah, 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 blah. And they, they really only take you so far. They kind of take you up to a point, but you can't quite get through that door. They're wonderful. They're thought-provoking. But they, you end up kind of with one final question after you wrestle with them. The final question is, can we really ever find God? Can we find him? None of them can prove he exists. I mean, at best, as Tom said, they can prove that it, belief in him is rational, it's reasonable, but it can't, it can't prove him. And it's kind of ridiculous if you think about it. 
to think that by clever arguments or using our limited wisdom, we're going to sort of expose and uncover the eternal power that created the universe, uh, that we're going to be able to hunt him down and capture him or to outwit him and expose him. And I think eventually what we realize is that wisdom can only take us so far in the pursuit of God. The secret to finding him, I think, is not really wisdom, but humility. Um, we have to understand, whether you're a Christian or not, you have to understand that you are simply not the protagonist in your story. You are not the hero. You are not the hero searching out God. That's not what's happening. It might feel like that. And if you want to get really nitpicky, you can't search for God. We're not equipped for it. Uh, and besides, we search for things that are lost, and God is not lost. We are. Christians believe that God does, in fact, find us, and that he reveals himself to us. And at some point, what I realized, and I, and I would wish the same for anybody here going through the same thought process, it's really stupid to walk through all these arguments and to search for God in all these places and never look in the one place that he actually said he's revealing himself. The Bible claims to be that revelation. It claims to be that sign. And we need a certain humility to sort of allow ourselves to just thoroughly explore this sign that God has provided. Uh, and it is a sign. The Bible is miraculous. It's unique in the history of mankind. So if you think about it, written over a thousand-year period, right, in a bunch of different languages, from all kinds of different cultures touching each other, dozens of different authors, and yet there's this message that is very coherent and very compelling. And anybody that doesn't believe that's true hasn't read it yet. So I would encourage everyone to explore it for that reason. It's also personal. When you read it, anybody who's read it can, can vouch for this. You feel like it's written to you. It's written for you. At the same time, it's universal. It's available to everybody. It's, it's not exclusive to you or to anybody else. It's available to all of us, just like a good sign should be. And it's constant. It's constant in that you can return to it over and over and over again. And so when your faith or your sense of reason in God starts to flag a little bit, you can always go right back to it like a well that never runs dry. Next week, Tom Werner is going to um, come here, and he's going to give us a taste for the evidence that the Bible is exactly what it claims to be. And then I, the week after that, Scott Holly is going to talk about the claims of Jesus, the way they're preserved in the Bible. And he's going to allow us to wrestle with the question the way C.S. Lewis put it, you know, Jesus Christ is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's a Lord. And then the following week, the Saturday after Easter, I'm excited to come back to talk about whether Jesus was raised from the dead, which really, if you think about it, is the most unbelievable, and if it's true, the most unbelievably important event in all history. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for the revelation of your word. I thank you that you put in our hearts a desire to know you. I thank you that you call to us. I thank you that you wake us up. Uh, I thank you, Lord, especially that you 
called and called and called to me and were patient and enduring uh, during all those years where I was not really listening. I thank you that finally you just took control. Um, I thank you for doing that for each and every one of us. Lord, I would just pray that through your spirit, the same journey that I went on, that uh, you would, as you walk other people through, that I would just pray it would be faster. I pray that they would have more time to enjoy uh, knowing you personally. I would pray for all of us who do know you personally, that we would feel equipped and confident in, in sharing and expressing our faith and doing it on terms that people that maybe don't share that faith are comfortable um, speaking to us about so that we can bridge that gap and do it all uh, through your spirit and to your glory. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.